grateful. We're so thankful for your love. We're so thankful for your kindness, for your mercies that are new each and every morning. And as we come before you for this time of reading, reflecting upon your word, the public proclamation, Lord, we just acknowledge that our need is not so much for information. There's nothing wrong with information, but it's transformation. It's to know the resurrection power of our risen Lord, the power that sets free captives, that saves, that sanctifies, that power that transforms our lives for the glory of your name. So, Lord, as we read and proclaim your word, your truths this day, Lord, I ask that it would accomplish through the power of your Holy Spirit all that you desire in our lives. Come and have your way afresh. Come, Holy Spirit, would you just rest upon each person here? Thank you that there's no accident that any of us are here, but you have things on your heart for each and every one of us today. So give us listening ears. Give us an open heart to receive with readiness that which you will speak, that which you will do in our hearts and our midst. We pray. We give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise as we will do for all eternity. King Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, if you came in a little late, as I said, we're continuing our series. Remembering that Peter, of course, writes this letter with this mission of proclaiming and exhorting true grace. He's painted the picture of what true grace is, and he's then taken a, a different tact at the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2 talking more about how this should affect the way that we live. And the first reality that we looked at a couple of weeks ago was this instruction, this exhortation that we should earnestly love one another. Of course, that continues into the first verse of chapter 2, which we looked at last time, where he says, Put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander. So we said there is this reality that not only is he proclaiming what grace is, he doesn't want us just to understand it. He wants this grace to grab a hold of our lives in such a way that it makes a difference. So if I wanted to know if you got grace, I would ask you. If I wanted to know whether grace had got a hold of you, I'd ask the person sitting next to you. There's an overflow of grace. He said that's the overflow. The test is not how much love's coming in, how much love we receive. That's wonderful. That's the place we begin to encounter his love. But he's saying, is the love flowing out? Is it spilling over? Grace is a life lived in overflow. And so the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore make every effort. The Lord is so passionate about getting us to love one another that he says, You will find yourself where, in places where there's malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. He's so passionate about us getting it, he's going to give us every opportunity to practice loving one another. And he continues that same thought. So that's by way of review to catch us up to where we're at. So verse 2 of chapter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed, and whenever you see an if, there's a good chance that it's slightly mistranslated in our English language because it's far stronger. He's really saying since, not saying if, saying since you have tasted that the Lord is good, you have tasted of his grace, you've tasted of his mercy, you've experienced his love. Therefore, there should be an outflow. There should be an outflow of loving one another. 
And this morning, as he's going to go to talk about, there should be an outflow of worship. So that's where we're headed. Let's read the passage, and then let's come back and delve a little deeper. So verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 2, says, As you come to him, being Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, built up for what purpose? He says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. That's really the key verse, but let's continue to get the flow of thought and then we'll come back and have a look in particular at verse 5. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But not you, for you... For us here today, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies who called us, you, me, out of darkness into his marvelous light. And everyone says amen to that passage. Wonderful picture. What's the flow of thought that Peter's trying to say in this portion of Scripture? He's saying there is a cornerstone. As prophesied, there is a cornerstone. The cornerstone, make no mistake, is Jesus. He would come, he would be rejected, but he would be the foundation. There is no other foundation other than the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. But upon that cornerstone, he is laying and building us. The picture here, and it's a picture I love, living stones built into a spiritual house to become a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices, to put it in our modern language, we might say to offer worship, to offer praise to the living God. And then the outflow of that praise is the proclamation. We get the grace, he gets the glory. We get the mercy, he gets the worship. This is the wonderful God-centric gospel. So this is our mission this morning. I want to talk to us about this phrase, being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer worship to God. Let's make a few observations. Number one, what Peter's really talking about here is public worship. Private worship, worship in a secret place if you like. There's no doubt that that has a place that is of importance. Worship is a very big topic. But he's specifically talking here about this outworking of grace to build us up into a kingdom of priests. This picture of a priesthood is mentioned twice in this passage and linked in with the proclamation of the glory of God. But he's saying this is, there's a sense in which we're called to gather with that, with that public proclamation of worship for the living God. That's what he's focused upon. And so before we delve into what it is and what it looks like, it's worth asking why worship? Why worship? Why is worship so important to God? Why is it such a focus and such an emphasis? And I've had, I'm sure, many of you would as well, people over the years, not a lot, but certainly a significant amount of people who come and they'll say, you know what, I don't understand worship. Like I come, I enjoy the teaching, happy to come and fellowship, enjoy the social activities, but I don't get the worship. What is with this singing thing? We come and we sing songs and occasionally if you come here, people 
the tambourines and flags and all sorts. Like, what, what is that all about? What is worship all about? I had someone come to me at one point. always remember this. It's a true story. And they said, you know what? And they went from this church. They're talking about their own church and expression. They said, you know what? We're, we're almost getting to a place where we're sort of doing away with worship. And the exact phrase was, you know, we feel like we don't need anything to warm us up for the word. Now, worship's just a warm-up, right? It's just a warm-up for what we're really here, which is for the Word of God. And I thought as I reflected upon that, I think people who have that particular mentality are going to need a lot of warming up for heaven, for eternity. Because every picture we see throughout the New Testament of the throne room of God, what do you see? What dominates front and center? Worship. The saints, the angels, the living creature, all creation is in worship. Worship's not the warm-up. It's not even the means to the end. Worship is the end. And you see, you don't, you don't see these living, the living creatures who it says, day and night, they're around the throne of God. They're not warming up. They're not saying, how long does this go for? When do we get to the real deal? When do we get to the proclamation of the word? Not to in any way diminish the need for us to come and gather around the word. But there's something about worship. Worship's so important that in the Old Testament, we see the Lord designate an entire tribe of Israel called the Levitical priesthood. And he establishes this group of people and all they do is come to minister to the Lord. It's a priority and it's an emphasis. So why worship? Well, I would like, I'll give you the, uh, the end conclusion and then I hope to come back and as we look at this passage to discover that this, in case, this indeed is the case. But I would suggest to us that there's few greater privileges, but also few greater priorities than for us to gather with that sense of public worship. There's few things that have greater purpose, greater significance, and greater power than for God's people to gather to worship Him. That's what I intend to hopefully have you agree with by the time that we're done this morning. And I would also make this general observation, worship is key in every season. It is. If you're in times of victory, the mountaintop experiences, the best thing you can do is to worship God, to honor Him, to give Him thanks. If you're in those difficult seasons where it feels like you're right in the valley, you're stuck in the mud, in the grit, and the, gr- the best thing you can do is to worship God. It's key in every season, and yet I feel like there is something for us and I'll talk about this as we go, there's something that is of great importance for us as a people, as a church, to grab a hold of in this area of worship as well. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. If you've got your pens, you'll have to write fast, have to follow along quickly. Here's the first aspect I believe that Peter brings out. There's only three. The first aspect that really defines this type of worship that we are called to. If we look at this passage in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, first of all, that we come to him. We come to Jesus. Then goes on in verse 5, and it says that we bring these sacrifices through Jesus. And as we read in verse 9, we bring these sacrifices for Jesus, for the proclamation of who he is. So we could say this, this sort of worship that Peter's talking about, it's to God, and it's through God, and it's for God. It's to Jesus, it's for Jesus, And it's through Jesus that we bring our worship. It's all about Jesus. Did you catch it? It's all about him. 
And I would make this statement. You see, we cannot truly worship God until we encounter the one who is truly worthy of our worship. That's the heart of capturing what this worship is all about. There's a story that illustrates this, I think, better than any other that we read in Scripture. It's a somewhat strange story. It's a story that I know that you'll all be familiar with. It's recorded in all the Gospels. We won't turn there. But it's a story of the woman with the alabaster box who comes to anoint the feet of Jesus. As I said, all the Gospels record this account. And if you read, if you read this particular story, you'll see that Jesus is there and he's teaching. We gather that perhaps there's a few people of prominence people of wealth, people of influence, and they're sitting around having a discussion with Jesus. And into this meeting, right in the middle, unannounced, comes this woman to the gasp and the shock and the horror of those around. And not only does she break in and interrupt this meeting, but she comes with this jar of expensive perfume. We're told it's worth a year's worth of wages. And she puts it all, she just breaks the jar and pours it out upon the feet of Jesus. Understandably, a number of people who are witnessing this event, they react with shock and horror and surprise. We probably would today if someone came during the middle of our worship set and they just poured expensive perfume worth hundreds of thousands of dollars all on the carpet here. We'd be like, what is going on? This is a little over the top. What is this all about? See, it's a strange story I always thought to include in the Gospels. And yet what made it even stranger and almost offensive to me as I first read the account, and this particular part shocked me, is Jesus' response. Because whilst many people are offended, he rebukes those who are criticizing this lady. And he says, no, you're not to criticize her. And in fact, he makes this statement. He says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, you are to tell the story of this woman. Now just think about that. That is a huge instruction that Jesus gives. He knows that the gospel will be proclaimed to people's tribes and tongues to the end of the age. This glorious message of the saving grace of our Lord and Savior. But he says, wherever the gospel message is proclaimed, make sure you tell the story of this woman. And as I thought about that, I thought, why? What is it about this story? If Jesus was going to choose a story, surely there is a better choice. Like what about the story of Jesus walking on the water? That's a good one. He hops out of the boat. You can even include the detail about Peter. He takes a few steps and he sinks. He always makes a good tale. What about the story of Lazarus? Lazarus come forth and he comes out in the grave clothes and they've got to unwrap him. This man who'd been dead. Oh no, he stinketh, they say. And yet there he is standing. I mean, that, that makes a great story. Of all of the accounts in the Gospels, the miracles, the signs and the wonders... Why choose this inconvenient story of a woman who busts into a meeting to pour out perfume on the feet of Jesus? Why? Why this story? And I would suggest this reason. See, I always thought it was a strange story, but it's become one of my favorites for this reason. I believe that there is no more appropriate response to the gospel, to the message, the reality, the encounter of who Jesus is than the act and the response of this woman. Remembering that this was a time where everybody sought Jesus out, but they sought him out for what he could give. The sick sought him out for healing, the oppressed sought him out for deliverance, and he loved to do that. He loved to set people free. He loved to heal people, rescue. 
people who are in need, even his very disciples who'd been with him for three years, round about at this time, the very night before Jesus went to give his life on the cross, they were still arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Is it going to be you? Is it going to be me? What positions of authority are we going to have? I'm going to sit at his right side and his left. Even after all that time, there was still a part of them that was following and seeking Jesus for what he could give and do for them. And yet in all the Gospels, there's this one account that stands in contrast to all the rest. As this woman, she brings her everything. And not just all of her material possessions, but her pride, her self-worth, and she extravagantly pours them out on the feet of Jesus. See, I would make this statement, worship is an invitation to this place This understanding, this encounter where you discover someone who is worthy of your everything. It's the people who come to Jesus, they come to worship, not because they have to, but because they get to. Just think of this. Come at this from another angle. I'm sure many of us this time of year are watching football games. And it always amazes me the passion of football fans, especially when referees make bad decisions. Raiders fans say amen. But you know, you see these passionate football fans and they don't have a discussion. You know, there's a try scored and they don't stand looking at at one another and they think, oh, well, there's a try. Should we celebrate? Should we stand up and cheer? Is it worthy of that? I don't know. I mean, who do they think they are, this team? They're demanding me stand up and cheer. I mean, all right, I guess we better do it. So they stand up and give a little bit of a cheer and then... There's another try, and it's a close game, and they're winning by one point. And I think, well, should we get up and cheer again? I mean, we just cheered before. Is this worthy of another cheer? I guess maybe it's worthy of my affection and attention, so all right, we'll stand. There's, there's no thought process like that, is there? No, no, in case you're wondering, no, there's not. <laughs> they are there with one mission and one objective, and that's to get into this game as much as possible, to cheer. It's my team, even though they're standing in the stands, eating pies and beer, but it's us. We're winning. We scored a try, and so they jump up, and it's, it's kind of like this, the try is not complete until there's a celebration. Like that's when finally, yes, come on, here we go. We're going to celebrate with unabandoned passion and enthusiasm. And I think, you know, that's a, a good picture in some ways of worship. We don't worship because we have to. We worship because we get to. There's this sense in which, not that he's not complete, but we're not complete until we fulfill what he's done with this expression of worship to him. I just, I've said this before, but I believe that the stadiums of sports fans should never outweigh the passion of the redeemed saints in worship of the King of Glory, the King of Kings. If we cannot get excited about who he is and what he's done, I don't know what will ever excite us this side of eternity. We are coming to worship him. Heard this wonderful uh, testimony this week. Catherine forwarded on a, a podcast that she'd been listening to. She said, you've got to hear this. And so I had a listen, and it was a church in Sacramento, and they'd been doing for about the last three or four years a prison ministry. It started really quite supernaturally. It was a God connection, and they'd been ministering in this prison and just seeing these incredible testimonies of changed, transformed lives. Incredible stories. And so they had in this particular service, they said, look, we've got a special treat for you. We've actually brought in a lot of these people 
the, the hardest of hardened criminals and they're just going to share their testimonies. And so person after person after person just sharing their encounter that they'd had with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm talking people, there was one guy who had five life sentences, five 99-year sentences. He wasn't due for release until 400 years' time. Imagine that. He encountered the Lord Jesus Christ and his testimony of how that happened and his changed life. And the prison noticed such a difference that after about five years, they said, look, we're going to put you up for parole. He said, forget it. I'm not due for parole even for 100 years, let alone release. But they put him for parole and they cancelled all of his five 99-year sentences. He now released to share the testimony. There was a guy who was in such a messed up state that he was in solitary confinement for 13 years. He was allowed out one hour a day when nobody else was around. That was the only time that he'd seen the daylight in 13 years. And Jesus encountered him and saved him and transformed his life. There was a lady who shared 20 years she'd been living on the street, in and out of prison. She prostituted her body only to pay for the next hit of drugs. And she was in such a bad state that when they put her in prison, they had to put her in a straitjacket because she'd attempted to take her own life so many times. So they could not even let her out of the straitjacket because they knew the only thing she would try and do was kill herself. And she encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. And now she goes back into the very same prison and she's got a heart for the death row women. She's got a group of death row women that she, she calls it. We don't call it death row, we call it life row. And I'm there to proclaim the life that's found in Jesus Christ. This is the power of the God that we worship. And the thing that we were saying, Catherine says, she says, I just, I just reduce God so I forget how big he is. I forget his power to save. I forget his, his power to impact and transform lives. He is worthy of our worship. And worship is that place where, again, we see him for who he is and we let nothing get in the way of coming him, to him, not because we have to worship, but because we get to worship. Get out of my way. I'm coming in to worship him. I don't care what it costs me. I am coming in to worship the one who's worthy of all my worship. The second point is this. He's after priests, not performers, not a performance. I love this picture. So it's all about him, we've said. And he links this in. He says, you're being built up to a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. It's a couple of realities to this picture of being a priesthood. The first reality is this. You see, we're not built up into just a passive building where his glory would come. That would be wonderful in and of itself. But we're being built up into a priesthood. And that means each and every single believer has a part to play in this. It's not about the worship team alone. It's not about the preachers. It's about every single believer. You are a living stone. And the Lord wants to use you as a priest to minister to him and to be a part of offering spiritual sacrifices worthy of him. It's not reserved for those who can sing hallelujah, play instruments. It's for each and every one of us. But there's a few keys to this picture of being priests. If you're taking notes, here's number one. Priests come primarily to minister, not to be ministered to. That's the primary focus. The primary focus is not what God can do for me as I come to worship. It's God, what can I do for you? See, we live in a time and an era where we are the most self-aware generation that's ever lived. And we can laugh about that. Like every time I log onto my Facebook, there's some new personality quiz. You know those things like what personality type are you? What this are you? What that are you? Which celebrity? Which superpower? Which ancient figure? Which color are you? Which vegetable? That's a genuine one. Which vegetable am I most like? 
And I don't mind those things. They're a bit of fun. You know, you can go and search. But we're so aware of ourselves. And when it comes to worship, we're so aware of how we like to worship. These are the songs I like. These are the musicians. These are the CDs. This is real worship because it does this for me and it does that for me. So aware of what we think worship is and how worship ministers to us. How often do we think about what actually ministers to him? How often do we come with that agenda just to minister to him? See, the flow on from this is so often we make worship about this moment, not a mission. It's the way that I phrased it. The moments are wonderful. I love those moments in God's presence. Even this morning, just as God comes, I'm like, God, you're here. Just in the presence of God, this is wonderful. I love those moments. But we don't want to forget in the moments that there's a mission. It's not just about the moments. There's this call to be priests, to minister, to pursue him, to come before with that heart, to know him. The pursuit of our lives is for him. It's a bit like I've used this example before, but in my marriage with my wife, it's a pursuit of one another. It's not just about the moments. We celebrate the moments, but there's hard and difficult seasons. And I don't just come to her. I say, babe, I just, I just need an encounter. Just zap me. Come and do what you've got to do. Do what you've got to do. It's a pursuit of her through seasons, through ups and downs. It's this mission to worship God. Let's never forget the moments, but let's not allow the moments to rob us from the mission. And there's another aspect to this, that worship really at the heart, and I believe you see this in this picture of the priests, it's not so much about a performance as it is about a passion. So often we've got to be careful because we come to worship the worship rather than to worship the one that the worship is supposed to point us towards. I was reminded of this. I will share quickly this story. But uh, this was a, a recent story, only a few weeks ago, and... Let's be honest, we're all human, yeah? Just give yourself a pinch in case you're wondering. Pretty sure we're all human. We're not perfect. We're all learning this, this journey of worship. And there is a tension for me. There is, because I love music, and I love music to sound good. There is always a tension to balance that thing of, well, it's, it's not a performance. It's just my heart. I want to get my heart right. But that's hard. That's hard, especially when you come along sometimes and maybe the worship team plays a few notes. I know that none of you are like that at all. Or maybe you're on teams as I was on this one particular week and things weren't quite going right. The worship team wasn't quite performing the way that I wanted them to perform. And there was this sting in me that was rising up. I'm like, God, I'm so frustrated. I think that particular week, Tony and I were leading together. And yet it was funny. So I sort of endured more than enjoyed this worship time, is the way I would. I'm sure none of you are ever like that with our worship times. We do our best. I'm sorry, we make mistakes. But I had one of those enduring worship times where I couldn't get away from the fact that it just wasn't sounding the way that I wanted it to sound. Just being honest. Just being honest. And yet it was so interesting because that particular Sunday, we'd finished the worship time, and then we have a vision Facebook page, if you didn't know, and someone made a comment. I think it was Anne. Where's Anne? I love Anne. There she is. She comments. She's like, that was the most incredible time of worship. You know, blah, blah, blah. It was, she said. And then someone else replied to that and said, oh, I agree. That was just, you know, what a time in the Lord's presence. And then someone else. And then someone else. And then someone else again. 
And then the testimony that I like the most is we had a lady there that particular Sunday who's not a regular. I don't even know if she's a Christian. But she was so impacted, she was still emotional after the service. And the testimony that came to me, I didn't hear this firsthand, I heard it via someone else. She said, you know what, I just, well this, this is the way it started off. She said, the moment those two young men started leading worship, that was the first miracle. <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that, Tony. <laughs> the moment those two young men started leading worship, she said, the presence of God. I have never encountered anything like that. I don't even know if she's a Christian. But she was here and she was radically impacted in counting the presence of God. And I was like, Lord, thank you for that reminder because it's not about a performance. And I've got to get over myself if I'm ever going to discover what this true worship is all about. That it really is not about a performance. And I believe that the Lord really is encouraging us into something in, in terms of worship. I mean, worship's good in every season, as I said, but we've had so many words as a church. So many words over the years. Things like, you know, the moment that in your worship you begin to hear the sound of heaven released. The moment you hear that, you know that the glory of God is about to come. There was a word recently that someone sent me. They said, I was in worship and I saw it was like the Lord was building this altar, this pillar of worship. And it was like the, the, the pillars had nearly touched the ground. And I knew that worship was key. It was a, an altar of worship in the church. And the moment that the pillars touched the ground, the glory and the power and the presence of God came in a new and a fresh way. Now, I want to say that to say that's not our goal. Our goal is not for him to do something. Our goal is him. But I want to say that there's something in this season that God is saying, don't forget that. I preached recently from Psalm 24, this thing of lift up your heads because the King of glory is coming. Like there is this place that the Lord is encouraging us to get to in our worship, to discover what true worship really is so that he might really release what he wants to do. And I believe so strongly that worship is key at this time in what the Lord wants to do in our midst. Strong. Thank you. Strong. Amen. Strong. So here's the final point. I want to make this observation as we've read First Peter, we've read this passage. Worship is an invitation. It really is. It is an invitation. Peter is saying this is the heart of God that you would come as living stones and that you would be built up to be this holy priesthood to minister to the Lord. And I think so often we forget the privilege that we're called to. As I said before, worship is an invitation not so much to what he needs as much as it is to what we need. I just want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. I want to read a passage. I'm going to conclude with this. Hebrews chapter 12, I couldn't talk on worship without mentioning this passage. But the context of this is remembering that Hebrews talks so much about the old covenant and the new covenant, what it represents, how it fulfills one another. And he's talked about the call of people, of us as the Lord's people to come before him in worship. And the context of this passage is he's describing an event that as the Lord delivered the nation Israel, he brought them out into the desert to the Mount, Mount Sinai for one purpose, and that was to hold a worship service. 
You could read this account in Exodus chapter 19. The Lord said to Moses, prepare the people. I've delivered you. I've set you free through the power and the deliverance that I've sovereignly shown on your behalf. And now I want you as my people to come and encounter me. He said, prepare them. For three days, Moses went around preparing the people. God's coming to meet with us. He's coming. His glory's going to come on the holy mountain. He's coming. Get ready. So for three days, they prepared themselves. It says the glory of the Lord came upon this particular mountain. What an awesome, terrifying experience it was. The tragedy, as the story goes on, is that they're so terrified that they say, we'll stay at a distance. And Moses, you just go. And eventually they end up, instead of worshipping the living God, they worship a golden calf. But he's comparing that experience and the call of God under the old covenant for the people to come and to worship and to meet with the living God to the call that we have under the new covenant to come and to meet with him. That's the context. Let's read it. Hebrews 12 verse 18. It says, For you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountains, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. See, that was the picture as God called his people to the mountain. But you, he says, chapter 12, verse 22. This is us. This is the new covenant. But you, the redeemed of the Lord, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Then jump down to verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's this writer saying? He's saying, remember what it is that you're doing as you come to worship. Let me distill it in this way. If I was to call each of you personally this week, which would take some time, but I said, no, I've got to do this. And I called you and on the phone I said this. I said, guess what? The Lord has just spoken to me. You're not going to believe this. I'm so excited. But God has said to me that as we gather next Sunday, he's going to come in glory. That we're going to gather in his very presence that we're going to gather before innumerable angels declaring the praises of God, that we're going to come and experience the power and presence of God as we gather. What would your response be? You'd be like, oh, that's nice. Thanks, Andrew. I'll see you. I think a few of us at least would be pretty excited. Like, this is amazing. I've got to tell anyone who will listen. Guess what? We are gathering next Sunday and the glory of God's going to be there. We're gathering in the presence of angels. We're gathering, and he is going to come and meet with us. We're gathering before Jesus, who's redeemed us and saved us. You know, we would come ready. We'd possibly even come early, even if the big coffee break wasn't on. We would come with this sense of excitement and purpose and readiness. Well, I've got some good news, because God has said that. He said that right here. He says, do not forget the privilege as you gather, that you gather in the presence of the Most High God. 
that you gather and you are meant to, designed to encounter and experience His glory in your midst as you come. It's supposed to be the picture of worship. You see, what happens if we come as a people into a room with that genuine desire to engage God for who He is? If our worship reveals and brings us into an encounter of the fullness of His presence, we look not for the moments, but that mission, that lifestyle of ministering to Him as we encounter the One who is worthy and spend our lives in pursuit of Him. What happens? Well, this is what I believe happens. It is then that we discover what real worship is. The sort of worship that brings a spiritual visitation, that ignites churches, that heals broken homes, that strips away the religious veneer, that gets us back to the reality of true spirituality, removing the counterfeits that so often we have used to replace what God has given to us. This is the place where the glory of God comes to reside and habitate the praises of His people, where the world sits up and takes notice and confesses that surely God is amongst His people. That's where we're heading. That is the picture of worship. And I believe that it is so critical any season to understand worship. But for us now, the Lord is calling us to a new level of worship, to come and to seek Him. So I'm going to get the worship team to come back. I know it's time. Our service is concluded. But we just had at the end of the early service this sweet time of worship. So by all means... If you need to go, you can grab your kids, you can head off, you can get into today, the things that are before you. But I wanted to at least end with an opportunity for us to come and to just be again in His presence, to minister to Him. And I don't mind if you stay for one minute, I don't mind if you stay for a week. We'll leave you with a key, I'll bring you food, we'll see you next Sunday, you'll be here early, ready to go. But I do believe, as Catherine preached a few weeks ago, it's this coming a time where if we're to encounter this true worship, it's going to get a little uncomfortable. It's going to get a little inconvenient at times. There may be a few lunch dates that you have to cancel because the glory of God shows up. And we're just here worshiping and praising and seeking Him. You know, if we really want to pursue Him in worship, there will be a cost. There will be. All that to say, I'm not expecting you to stay a week. But if the Lord turns up, amen, bring it on. But I do want to finish intentionally in worship. So can we stand?